0: So, there are some new folks here today and I just want to tell you this is part three and if you do keep coming back, you'll realize I can never finish anything in a timely manner or in a complete unit or set, it appears, so I won't be able to fill you in on what's gone before, but you can certainly catch all of that material uh, online. That's the awesomeness of technology. We, we, We put those up so you can listen to all the sermons that have been given previously. But we're in part three and... We're going to pick up basically where we we left off, but beloved, we we learn, just a little bit of introduction, we learn from this letter that, that Christians, Christians, I assume that's a lot of you, and if that is you, Christians are to live worthy of the gospel of Christ that they say they believe. That was in verse 27 of chapter 1. Which means, in part, that Christians are to be and remain committed to biblical unity in their local church, which entails Christians laying aside their personal agendas or anything that would be detrimental to the unity of their church, and not remaining aloof or detached from the church, but rather truly, sincerely partnering with, locking arms with, their brothers and sisters in Christ in their local church, and by the power and energy of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and in accordance with God's perfect word, laboring together, and it is labor, and supporting one another in advancing the name of Jesus Christ to those around them. How? Through ever-increasing manifestations of glorious gospel words, words concerning the gospel, words about Christ, words in reference to His great salvation, and through ever-increasing manifestations of gospel deeds. That is, the transformation that takes place in the life of a Christian through the power of the gospel that they believe and points to the magnificence of that gospel. As Paul says, for to live is... Yes. And Paul, of course, makes that personal. For me to live is Christ. But that should be the cry of every follower of Christ, every Christian. So with that, let's read the text. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, So, to the church in Philippi, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, As I have said in previous messages, the word so at the beginning of verse 1, also translated therefore, depending on your translation, that links this section that I just read with the preceding paragraph, which is chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, where Paul speaks of the worthy life that I just uh, spoke of. And speaks of concerning that worthy life, of being united as a church and resolute in the face of opposition to the gospel, which the church in Philippi was experiencing for real at that time, real opposition. In this section, Paul returns again now to the topic of unity. He's not done talking about such an important matter. This is part three, and... I left off basically at verse 2. Yeah, two sermons to get through one verse. So, but we're going to finish today. We're going to do the rest of the section. We are picking it up at verse 2. Again, I encourage you to go back and listen if you didn't, but for a little bit of review, the four expressions or statements that we, that we see there in verse 1, they convey what is true of the church in Philippi there's no it's not a it's not a matter of doubt or question they convey what is actually true of the church in Philippi and for that matter these are things true of any church any church because of the gospel because of the work of salvation and being true they They serve, Paul is using them, they serve as the basis and motivation then for the unity that Paul describes and urges the church toward in the verses that follow. Because of this, then, you have every reason to be united and complete my joy as Paul describes it. And if I were uh, to paraphrase these things and try to bring them all together, here's the phrases In the word of God, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and I explained to you that if could be translated since there is, since there is, it's a conditional uh, statement, since there is then. So since there is ample and powerful encouragement, support, and divine help from you being united with Christ, and you know the real blessings of of God's love having been poured out on you in Christ, and there is a common sharing in the indwelling Holy Spirit that has made you one family in Christ, and through the Holy Spirit, there is concern and love for one another, verse 2. Complete my joy, which is the only imperative or command in this long sentence in the Greek that runs from verse 1 through verse 4. That's the command, complete my joy, and then he'll explain how they are to do that, but it has everything to do with unity. I've given you the reason and the foundations and every motivation that you have in the gospel to do this very thing, complete my joy, be united. And he'll explain that. All right, you with me? I left off last time, though, by saying, Is that self serving? Complete my joy. Like, is he, what's that about? I told you to think about that, and I said, No, it's not. I said, It's not self serving that Paul would say that. Wait, wait why, is this about you, Paul? That's the question I'm asking you. Is that what Paul's doing? Is he making it about him? He's not. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Complete my joy, you could could translate it like this, bring my joy to its full completion. Bring my joy to its full completion, church in Philippi, that I love, my gospel partners. Bring my joy to its full completion. Is it self-serving? It's not. One writer says this, this imperative seems unnecessary. In other words, you could leave it out. He could just say, go skip that and just go right to be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. But he inserts this complete my joy. He interjects this strong personal appeal to the church in Philippi. And the writer says, while on the surface this may sound self serving, in reality it speaks volumes about. Paul's heart, and remember I said that one of the things about this letter is it it is very good at exposing, revealing to us the Apostle Paul's heart, which is inspiring, convicting, and challenging. I'm speaking personally to my own heart. Paul's heart, you know, we always talk about David. He's a, He has, when we talk about King David, we say always... Something we point out about King David is we say he was a man after God's own heart. Boy, that man had a heart for God. An imperfect man, for sure. That man had a heart for God. Yeah? You can't read the Apostle Paul, and by that I mean read the letters that he wrote, contained in the Bible, and not come away with the same conclusion. He loved God. He loved Christ. And and as we look at this letter and we consider this command, bring my joy to full completion, we see this is a, a holy command, a worthy command, a glorious command. Because as I said, His joy... What brings him joy is the very thing that brings joy to God. It's God's joy. His joy is God's joy. They're one. And we see that. I'm not making that up. We see that in the text. It tells us there in the letter. Leading up to this section, what what do we learn about this joy of Paul's? Well, right at the opening. Let me remind you in verse 1, in chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 1, reverse, verse 3. I thank my God, as he writes to them, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer for you with joy, with joy. Why? Why? Why the joy? Because of your partnership in the gospel From the first day until now, 10 years span, they have, he planted this church, and from the beginning through 10 years now, while he sits imprisoned in Rome or in imprisonment, they have partnered with Paul in one way or another in the advance of the gospel. And as I said, the advance of the gospel is, to say it another way, it's the advance of Christ, it's the making much of him. And what else is there, beloved? Or should I say, is there anything more important, beloved? For to live is Christ. And so he has great joy in his heart every time he turns to his loving Lord and and reaches out to him and and prays for his, his dear church there in Philippi because they too have the same love he has. They want to advance Christ and they are doing it. They're in their community and in addition with partnering with Paul that he can continue his missionary work to the world to make Christ known. That's his joy. Speaking of his present circumstances, as we just continued down the letter, his present circumstances, where is he? He's in Rome. He's imprisoned, right? He has a trial that's coming up. He could die. He could be executed at the trial. It could happen. He may be set free. But remember that section? Either way, Christ is going to be honored. And remember, even as he's saying, I'm here and I'm praising God because in my imprisonment, the gospel is going forth in a bolder way here in Rome. However, there's some folks who are preaching and they're doing it. They have impure motives. They're trying to poke me by their, their freedom and, and getting out there and making Christ known. We don't know exactly what that's all about, but that wasn't pure. That wasn't loving what they were doing, but Paul doesn't, he doesn't sit on that. He doesn't go, I can't believe how dare they would treat me like this. Well, how disrespectful do they know who I am? I'm the great apostle Paul, and he, he is. He was. He didn't do any of that. He said, look, either way, as long as Christ is being proclaimed, I'm good, because it's not about me, right? And so we see that in verse 118, what then, as he, as he, as he talks about his pregnant circumstances, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That's where my joy is. Yes, and I will rejoice. And again, that he, right after that, he begins to talk about the upcoming trial. And I may die, I may live, but either way, I know by your prayers and the help of the Spirit, Christ will be glorified and honored there at that moment. You, you with me? That's his joy. One writer says this, in his present circumstances, trying as they are, in an anticipation of his trial, he has rejoiced and will continue to do so. Since the gospel is being furthered and Christ is about to receive even greater glory, now he urges them, the Philippians, to bring that joy to its full completion by advancing the gospel still more in Philippi. And we'll see that in the context. That's that's what he'll talk about as we get to verses 14 through 16. But then the, the writer says, but to do so, they must get their act together. This church, the murmuring and bickering must cease. They must come to common mind about life together in Christ and must show the same by their mutual love for one another. His command is not self-serving. It's, it's an honor of Christ. It's that they might even better serve the Lord that they both love. You see? Complete my joy. By being of the same mind, now he explains how, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The phrases there that I just read in verse two, they are complementary and they are overlapping. Okay? They're all describing biblical unity, unity in the body, unity in the local church. So let's look at each one, all right? Because when Paul writes to the church in Philippi to complete my joy, we can extend this to the church in Fontana. Okay? We can. We can apply it to us legitimately that we too should come under the Apostle Paul, the authorized representative of Christ, we should come under his command, and we should seek and strive to complete Paul's joy, because it is God's joy. Yes or no? Yes. So this is not just for some ancient church, 2,000 years old. It's for us, 2019, right here. This is what we should be striving to do. Okay? And as I said before, you don't strive to do this once and then it's done. You know? It is like it is like a it is like weight gain, honestly. I mean, do you ever stop dealing with your weight? Right? You're like, boom! I'm at my perfect weight, whatever that is even. I don't even know, but I'm there. And then you're like, I never have to concern myself about that again. (laughs) Well, that is similar, in that sense, to unity in the body. And that's why I told you, Paul says in Ephesians, you have to be diligent to preserve the unity, to maintain it, to keep it. Because the enemy is constantly working to disrupt it. And if he can disrupt it, then all manner of chaos will break loose. And more importantly, the advance of the gospel will be diminished to one degree or another. And of course, the enemy uh, is not only working against it, but we've got our own sin that remains, that we don't... Always pay attention to or deal with or leave unchecked. And so it's a constant battle. But it is to be a battle. You're to be aware of the battle and you're to be engaged in the battle for unity. Now, there are some fights that aren't worth fighting. This is a fight worth fighting. Okay? And engaged means you're not on the sidelines. You're like, eh, whatever. No. All together fighting for these things. You want to look at them now? You ready? All right. Are you? Yeah? you sure? Gloria? Good. All right. By the way, Teresa, we need your phone number. Don't leave, okay? Gotcha. Okay. I'm just making sure you're all awake. All right. Here we go. But we do need it. All right. By being of the same mind, by being of the same mind, by being like-minded is another translation. One uh, uh, commentator concerning this, by being of the same mind, this is, this is him, his description of what biblical unity in the local church is to be, what we're to strive for. He says this, Paul is not asking them to have the same thoughts or feelings about everything. Uh, we, don't, we can think differently about ice cream. You know what I mean? Or recreation, what we like, what we don't like. We can, we can have different thoughts. Okay? He's not saying you need to think exactly alike. He also says they're not called to be ditto marks of each other. You know, I look at you and you're just exactly the same as the other one. No, Paul is not squelching human creativity, nor is he prohibiting personal diversity. In fact, the body is stronger because of its diversity, as long as it's united. He says he is calling them to seek the same goal with a like mind. The same goal with the like mind. Can I paraphrase? I'm going to anyway. I want you to be on the same page. You need to be on the same page. Listen, if two or more people are on the same page, what does that mean? It means that they're both looking at the same page. No, okay. Well, kind of. Well, if two or more people are on the same page, they are in agreement about what they together are trying to achieve, and they're moving together toward that goal. They're on the same page, yeah? Parents who are not on the same page, disaster. Yeah? So now I'm looking in another realm so that you can see why this is so critical, right? Mom and dad have entirely different goals for their children, different ways of approaching, yeah, you're gonna, you'll be undone. You'll be undone. Those kids will own you. Yeah? Okay, a team of any sort, not on the same page. Disaster! Can you imagine? The quarterback's like, what are you guys doing? Since it is football season. What are you guys doing? Well, we decided we're going to do what we want to do. And you can do what you want to do. We'll see how it works out. That's not going to work. They're all done. They're going to lose every game. Right? But it's not always easy getting everyone on the same page. My goodness, it's not easy. But I think this is where the power of the gospel comes in. The gospel actually provides the resources to get a bunch of different people Way different, coming from all kinds of different backgrounds, with different ideas about different things, actually on the same page. The gospel has the power to do that. It's supposed to be one of the, the lights of the gospel. Look at those people, rich, poor, all kinds of different colors, socio-economic, different levels, different education levels, one on this side of the tracks, one on that side of the tracks. And yet, they work. Together as one team. What does that? Jesus does that. Jesus does that. At least that's what we're to be giving ourselves to because, like fools, we fight or we're ignorant and we don't fight for this unity. Instead, we fight with one another. Like I said, that's not a good fight to have. Okay. So, be on the same page. Having the same love. There's the next phrase, all right? I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to have the same love. To what does this refer? I'm going to tell you. It's ambiguous. It's a little, it's not super clear. The same love. So, as I look at Bible scholars, one scholar that I respect says, what can this be but a love identical with God's love? His own love bestowed on us so that we act and react as he would do. So basically, the same as God's love towards you that Paul spoke of in verse one. You've experienced this love. I want you to have that same love among yourselves, the very love that you have experienced of God, which is a biblical love, which is that self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of those loved. Yeah? All right. Another commentator says that he thinks it's reciprocal love for one another, mutual love. In other words, you have the same love that he has for you. Same. Just it's mutual. It's not one way. Okay. But it's ambiguous enough to, to include both ideas. It could certainly include both ideas. And that's the position I would take. So one writer says, the same love that he wants them to have points back to the statement in verse 1, if there is any comfort from God's love. The context demands that he is first of all urging the church to have the, the same love for one another that they have already experienced in God's love for them. By this we know love, that he loved us. So the very love we are called to show to one another is not a love we have to figure out or create. It's the very love that we have been shown in Christ by God. You see? So it's not the world's idea of love, which is if I do for you, you do for me. It's God's love. It's not even just God's idea. It's actually His love showed to us, manifested to us in the person of Christ, sent on our behalf to reconcile us to himself, even though we didn't deserve it, even though we actually deserve the opposite. But the writer says at the same time, he wants them to have shared love, each having the same love for the other. So it's, no, I would be comfortable with that. It's both ideas. Both ideas can be included in this statement, having the same love. But then he says in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul told them that he prays that their love might abound still more and more. Do you remember that? He prays that their love might abound still more and more. That tells you something. There is love among them, right? And he's praying for that very love to excel even more, to increase. So the writer says, love, therefore, is not lacking in this community. At issue is the danger of its being eroded by internal friction, by their not having the same disposition about what it means to be God's people in Philippi, to be that church, or to be a church. They don't have the same mind, or there's some confusion about that, or not all of them have the same mind. And because of that, there is danger, there is eternal friction, there is bickering, which could lead to a decrease in the love that they are to have for one another. So have the same love. Don't let that happen. Root out those things that would prevent that from happening. And do the things that accelerate and manifest and demonstrate that love. That love for one another. Three, being in full accord and of one mind. All right? Being in full accord and of one mind. So they are to have the same love. They are to be of the same mind. And now they are to be in full accord and of one mind. One translation puts it like this, working together with one mind and purpose. That's, a, that's reasonable, that's a fairly reasonable translation of what's being said here. Let me break it down though, full accord, full accord. This term occurs only here in the New Testament, so we don't have a lot of other places to look, you know? but in the Greek it literally means like sold or one sold. So one commentator says the word means souls together. Souls together. So it suggests harmony. Harmony with one another. They're in sync, if you will. Souls together. Again, remember these all these phrases are complementary to one another or overlapping. They're all getting at the same idea biblical unity. One writer just says this, the word here means something close to harmonious or together as one person. Again, putting emphasis on unity. Unity, both in feeling as well as in thought and in action. Again, not that we think the same way about everything, but we think the same way about something, about our purpose, about what God has us here for, for why he has saved us, or why he has chosen to gather us together, we're thinking the same about that. We have the same feelings about that. We're driven to that. We're working together for that. We're harmonizing. Harmonia- her- my goodness, harmonizing. That's probably the wrong way to say Why do I do that? I did that before when I was in Romans, and still hearing me. Harmonizing. And then he says, full accord and being of one mind. Can someone check the air for me? Seriously, thank you. If I'm dying, then you're dying, and that's not good, because we're gonna ramp it up here. Being of one mind. This this is again, I think, overlap with being of the same mind. Okay? So he just comes back and he hits it again. It's it's very closely related to being of the same mind, being of one mind. It literally calls for believers in Christ to be those who are thinking one thing. Those who are think thank you, brother. Those who are thinking one thing, all right? So I found this and I wanted to share it with you from one uh, commentator, which I thought was helpful as we think about what it is to be united in this local fellowship. He says this, being of one mind and full accord, having the same mind, having the same love, but specifically being of one mind and having the same mind. He says this, repetition, that's what we see here, repetition of the same mind, of one mind, hammers home his challenge. To be united by focusing on one common goal and concentrating together on one thing. Divisions can be overcome only by taking on a common yoke and pulling together in the same direction. When believers are preoccupied with their personal agenda they will pull in different directions and split the church into separate interest groups. By focusing on their own egocentric priorities, they will be disunited. Only by setting their minds on one thing will they be united by one common subject. Although the content of the one thing is not explicitly stated at this point, the entire letter to the Philippians asserts that Christ is the one common subject that unites and binds believers together. When Christians declare that to live is Christ and desire to know Christ above all other things, then they will be of one mind Because they will be worshiping and serving together the one who God exalted to the highest place. That was so well said. So well said. And beloved, he is that one thing that can bring all of us together around that one thing. Because he is the most important thing. We could have disagreements about our other personal things, about which one is more important than the other, but there is nothing greater than him and his cause and his advancement and his promotion and his fame. There's nothing greater. And I say that only because it's not because I'm smart. I I think I'm smart. Some may doubt that, but it has nothing to do with that. There are smart people who would deny what I just said much smarter than me, intellectually. I say that because the Spirit of God has convicted me of that, brought that conviction in my heart. And I believe it's the same conviction that the Spirit of God brings to all the children of God. There's nothing greater. Now, we get stupid sometimes and think there is something greater. But the Spirit of God has a way of bringing us back to our senses, to helping us see things rightly, biblically, as God has declared they are. Right. So it's the one thing. What else are we going to get? There's nothing else we could actually get united around. There's nothing that has the weightiness, the worthiness, to draw us all together under the one thing. It is Christ. It is Christ. And it's him. So now, after he says and explains what it is to complete his joy as he further describes what biblical unity in the church should look like and what we should strive for and cultivate and seek to maintain, he has to address some problems that are a danger to that unity. And he does that, and then he also provides the positive of how they should be thinking and treating one another in order to help with the unity. So he says this, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Stop. So again, this is not a separate, this is all has to do with the unity. I told you, it's one long sentence in the Greek. And actually the word do is not there. He's just saying, and basically, and nothing, let nothing happen, let nothing be about you, be about selfish ambition or conceit. And that's, by the way, excellent counsel in general, right? I mean, just like husband, wife, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Uh, employee, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I mean, just good counsel. Just memorize that passage. But it's in a context. And it's specifically dealing with the issue of this church in the matter of disunity, or the potential for disunity, and Paul wanting them to make his joy complete, to bring it to its max. And so in order for that to happen, they need to put these things away from them. And I I don't think these are like just general things. He's like, you know, just generally speaking, put this away from you. No. He has heard report back about this church, and I think these are specific issues, issues, actual issues for the church in Philippi. And as I said, these are the very things that work against the unity that Paul was calling upon the Philippian church to have. And by the way, remember this, don't forget this. He's calling upon the church to have this unity because being united, that will better advance the gospel of Christ, and that is what it's about. So it's not like, yay, you're united, and then we end there. No, we're united for a purpose. We're united around a person. We're united for him. You see? To live as Christ. So let's look at them real quick. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. I think you could figure out what that means without me even explaining it to you. Another translation would be self-seeking. So this would be the wrong aim for you, Christian. This is your, the wrong aim. This is not the direction you should be headed. You remember that in verse chapter 1, verses 15 and 17, when he was saying those who preach Christ from envy and rivalry... They do that out of selfish ambition. Same word selfish ambition. That's where it's, that's the heart that's flowing out of the attitude that's there that's creating this envy and rivalry. It's self seeking, it's self advancement, it's self promotion. It's the very opposite of what, and again, if everyone here is about their own self promotion, can there be any unity? If you are all, if we're all selfishly setting ourselves up as the ones that this is what should be done. And this is, can there be any unity? There can't. There won't. It is, the word is, it's a, think of it like this, it's a serving or a working for personal gain. It's not for the gain of another, it's for your gain. Because, you know, we're selfish. So ambition in and of itself is not bad. Ambition for Christ is glorious, but that is not what he's talking about. It's selfish ambition, self-seeking, self-advancement. One writer says this, "'This is the attitude of those who, demeaning themselves and their cause, are busy and active in their own interest, seeking their own gain or advantage. They cannot lift their gaze to higher things.'" Their gaze is fixed on them, self. And what would those higher things be? What do you think? Christ, which would be the highest thing. It, when he said that, it reminded me of Paul Tripp. You know, we've looked at a lot of his stuff on marriage and on parenting and his devotional that we encourage you to get, daily devotional, and he talks about the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self. It's something we all struggle with. Instead of living for... God's coming kingdom and and looking to advance the king of that kingdom by telling others about him and making him known so that God can gather additional citizens for his kingdom. Instead of doing that, and, and by the way, in that kingdom, you know what we are? Servants. We're serving the, there's only one king, king. But in the kingdom of self, I think I'm king, right? I want that role. And guess what you all become? That's right, servants. And that gets really complicated because if you're thinking kingdom of self too, then you're a king and I'm a king, Well, who's going to serve us? And so we just have to beat each other to a pulp until one of us surrenders to our kingship, which is what husbands and wives do, sadly. Right? But it happens in the church. It happens in all kinds of different contexts, right? And Paul Tripp, I was just thinking about that kingdom of self. It's it's such a problem for all of us, beloved, for all of us. Because of remaining sin, he says this about the kingdom of self, Paul Tripp. I just thought I'd share this with you. The biggest protection against the kingdom of self is not a set of self-reformative defensive strategies. Rather, it's a heart that is so blown away by the right here right now, glories of the grace of Jesus Christ that you're not easily seduced by the lesser temporary glories of that claustrophobic kingdom of one, the kingdom of self. Yeah, Let Christ have his way with you, see him for who he is, and then you will see how foolish it is for you to try to Place yourself where only he belongs. You will see that it is, he is worthy of his status as king and deserves your everything. He deserves to be promoted, not you. He deserves to be exalted, not you. You see? See his glory. See his glory. Be blown away by him. Conceit. Conceit. All right, no selfish ambition. No self-advancement. No self-promotion. Put that away and conceit. I bet you guys understand this word too. Who likes conceited people? Just love them. Like you're like, you know what? I need some good conceited friends. They're the best. Who likes that? And yet, you know, it's like with anything. It's easy for us to see the sin of others, but often more difficult to see it in ourselves. And so uh, this is a good church, by the way. This is a good church. I just want to remind you of that. Church in Philippi, good church. He's a lot of praise for this church. And he says, he's telling them, there's some folks, at least some, where selfish ambition and conceit are a real thing, and it's causing problems in this good church. And if left unchecked, it could hurt their witness for Christ. And that would be the great tragedy. The Greek means, by the way, conceit, just in case you don't know, uh, an English definition would be excessive appreciation of one's own worth or virtue. Excessive appreciation of one's own worth or virtue. The Greek literally means empty glory. That's what I mean empty glory, self conceit. It is pride without proper basis. Empty conceit is another way it's translated. Vain conceit is the NIV. Vanity is the NET. This is, so if the other one was the wrong aim, selfish ambition, this is the wrong assessment of yourself as a Christian. Wrong aim, wrong assessment. It is an exaggerated (laughs) self-evaluation. One writer puts it there, glory is only a false illusion. Let me give you this quote. This word occurs throughout the Greco-Roman world, the Greek word translated conceit in our ESV, to describe those who think too highly of themselves, not those who might appear to have grounds for glory, but those whose glory is altogether baseless. (laughs) And uh, if you think about... The context here and what we're about to step into in Philippians when we talk about the humility of Christ, (sighs) the contrast is even more serious. One writer says, Paul well understands that if these attitudes are allowed to continue unchecked, the believing community in Philippi is headed for serious trouble, far more serious than is probably currently present. Additionally, he says, these words point forward to the section that's coming next, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. As the opposites of the mindset of Christ, who as God did the antithesis of selfish ambition by pouring himself out and becoming a servant. And as a man, the antithesis of conceit by humbling himself unto death on a cross and we who are followers of Christ what does that mean huh that i mention him once in a while in prayer or to follow christ is to is to to follow him to obey him to become like him so there's no room for conceit especially for a sinner Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, he says, but then in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see that? In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. In humility. So, if the wrong assessment of ourselves is conceit, the right assessment would be humility. It's the right or proper assessment of self for the Christian. And again, it's a, it's a stark contrast with selfish ambition and conceit. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we'll come back to humility again and again because the scriptures come back to it again and again and the need for it because of indwelling pride, sinful pride. But I just thought this was important because maybe we are, get confused about humility. One author says that humility must not be confused with false modesty, what is that? Well, it's that kind of abject servility that only repulses, wherein the humble one, by being obedient or attentive to an excessive or servile degree, gains more self serving attention than he or she could do otherwise. It's a false humility. Oh, 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 look, look how humble I am. Do you see? Do you see how humble I am? And I, I do these servile roles for the purpose of drawing attention to Myself, which is really not humility at all, it's just self seeking again. He says, rather, humility has to do with the proper estimation of oneself, the stance of the creature, that's us, before the creator, utterly dependent, utterly and trusting. It's, it's a place of humility if one is thinking rightly. And he says, here one is well aware both of one's weaknesses and of one's glory. Listen, we are in his, made in his image after all. We are the pinnacle of creation. But the one walking in humility makes neither too much nor too little of either. True humility is therefore not self-focused at all. It's not self-focused at all. Pride exalts self. Humility is balanced. Humility sees itself rightly. Humility understands that it's what, it, what we are or what it is or what we are. In humility, we understand rightly, totally dependent. We are the creature. He is the creator. And so in humility then, it won't be in pride, it won't be in, in self-advancing or self-promotion or in conceit, but in humility, the church is you us, brothers and sisters, are to count others more significant than ourselves. We are to count others more significant than ourselves. This is necessary for the sake of unity. Paul does not say, in humility, count yourself as nothing, as worthless, as having no value. He doesn't say that. He's not saying, you're nothing. Now walk around and go, I'm just a nothing. I'm just nothing. No. I am something in Christ. He has made me to be something. He's working in me. I have value in Christ. I am something. But rather, he says, Count others more significant than you. So, what is he saying? One author says he's not counseling readers to beat themselves up or put themselves down. Instead, he is urging them to build up and lift up others, others in the body. The focus is not negative, but positive. So the idea is let the needs and interests of others surpass yours or come before yours. Put them in first place. Give them the place of honor. Respect them. Listen to them. Speak about them in a positive way, not in a gossiping way. Serve them. Strengthen them. Encourage them. It's putting others instead of ourselves in the center of our concern. And, of course, you can only do that in humility. There's no place for that in your sinful pride or your foolish self-importance, excessive self-importance, or in your conceit. conceit. One writer says this, Instead of being preoccupied with introspective, self-absorbed, egocentric thoughts, The mind turns outward to regard the value of others. This direction of thinking is not obsessed with negative thoughts about oneself. It is freed from thinking about oneself to consider others. Honestly, boy, we could just stop right there, but we can't. But we could stop right there and talk about all the the drama that we make for ourselves by being so self-obsessed and self-absorbed. And we weren't made for that, beloved. We weren't made to be that. We were made to live for God and then live for his people, live for one another. So it's a a complete contradiction to how God has designed us to be self absorbed and constantly focused on self. Paul's challenge is to value others, or Paul's challenge to value others is really a call to think about here in this context the needs of the community. What community? The church community. The body of Christ, that local fellowship, the health and welfare of the community then becomes the focus of attention when members are considering one another in humility, in humility. Do you remember what I said? you remember what I said? I said, how do we advance the gospel, right? How do we do that? How do we make much of Christ? It's going to be a greater increase, an ever increasing manifestation of gospel words and gospel deeds. And so we are brought together as one body to help one another to get better at that. To get better at that, to encourage one another to that, to help bring sanctification into the lives of others so that their gospel deeds will show up better and brighter and to help them understand the gospel they believe so that when they repeat those gospel words, they're accurate and they're good and they're glorious and they're more full and robust. But that would require that, we take an interest in each other and care about the well-being spiritual well-being certainly includes physical too but spiritual well-being where are you on the sanctification chain being and then investing in each other's lives and we i we do i'm not i'm not harping on you guys we do it but can we do it better and are we all doing it i don't think so let me just say no. You all here are not partners. Not yet. You're not really partnering with the church. I want you all to be for the sake of Christ. Not because I'm like, you know, I've got a, a chart, and as soon as I hit 100 partners, then finally I'll feel like I'm something. You know what I mean? No. It's because this is God's design. This is what He wants all together. This is what he wants for his glory. This is how he advances himself. Where am I? I know. So finally, look, each of you not, he says in verse 4. So verse 4, let me just say this. Verse 4 elaborates what it is to count others more significant than yourself. I'm wrapping. This, This elaborates then. So Paul is explaining. I just told you to do this. This is what it looks like. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul does not prohibit any interest in one's own affairs, right? He's not saying, hey, don't care about yourself. Don't, you know, don't, don't concern yourself with yourself. No. But he's saying don't be preoccupied, selfishly, sinfully preoccupied with you. That's what Paul is not okay with this isn't about you. You've been brought into this body to care for the body and to be cared for by the body. It goes both ways. Give yourself to that. And by care, I don't mean care like in the sense that we might think of it just common care, but care as we're helping move each other into more Christ-likeness so that we might be better gospel witnesses, so that we my do what God has called us to do as a local body, advance the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's that's it is that simple. And so if you are, if you if you are if you are looking not only to your own interest but also to the interest of others, you would think differently about things, and I'll just give you a feeling that I'm done. Like, for instance, I've said this before, like growth group attendance. Like sometimes I... Or church attendance. Let's try that one. Let's try church attendance. It catches more of you. I don't feel like going. I don't feel like going. Well, I get... You know, because I... And I'm okay. Or how about this one? I'm okay this week. Whatever that means. You're not, because none of us are. I You know, we're not. But okay, let's go with it. I'm okay this week, or I don't feel like going. Okay, well, I guess if everything's about you, then that's the end of the decision. I guess so. But if you're part of this body... And you being there, if you're thinking, no, no, it's not just me, but I, I in order to do what Paul has asked me to do, I, have to, I need to concern myself with the interest of others. There will be others there who maybe had a hard week or just need me to be there, just need me to be there so they can see you're here too, you're here too, and maybe we'll talk about something and I can pray for my sister or brother or maybe it's just a comforting look or a smile or a hug. I mean, that's bare bones minimum. Or maybe it's something more serious that they need help or counsel, and you're not there. Why aren't you there? Because you don't feel like going. Well, yeah, if it's only about you, then I guess that's the end of the story. But if it's not, then you would think, could I be a blessing to others by being there? Yes. You, You hear what I'm saying? And I could keep going down the thing, but I'm over time again. And you got to go get the kids out of the nursery. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray that you would do something that I can't do, which is perfectly apply this text into the hearts of us, your people, and that they would have conviction where conviction is necessary, the Holy Spirit would bring it upon them as they just think on, think on these words, just think on them and ask you, Father, to do a work in us, in us, do that work. That's what we're asking, Father, I pray that my brothers and sisters will ask that too, that they'll not just walk out. and But they'll even even maybe before, at before they, 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 the end of the day, they'll stop and they'll pause and just ask, God, do a work, do a work. Is this true of me? Is this very true of me? Is this not true of me? Am I doing this? Do I think like this? Am I really partnered with this body? Am I concerned? Am I on the same page? Do I have the same love? Am I going in the same direction? Am I going at all? And Father, we, we desire you to do this because we know by these means you, you do the greatest thing ever. You make your son Jesus Christ known in a greater and more glorious way. and Oh, he is so worthy. He is so worthy. And it is the delight of our hearts to see that happen. And, and so I desire above all else to see that happen here in this little local body. I pray that you do that work, God.